Welcome to the Eye on the Tigers podcast. This is Dave Matters, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, stltoday.com, Mizzou beat writer. And joined today by Ben Fredrickson, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, stltoday.com, sports columnist. Ben, good morning, good afternoon, whatever time of day it is. The days are all, they all kind of seem the same on these snow days. My house is busy and full and these children are going to have to go back to school at some point. So I am uh, locked away in the basement like I have been really for the last 10 days or so, it seems like. And uh, let's let's actually be productive, though, and record a podcast, talk a little bit about we've got signing day just happened, the second signing day, which is actually isn't really signing day anymore. It seems like we got SEC coaches bickering back and forth. Somehow Eli Drinkwitz has stayed above the fray or out of the fray, and he's got another top 20 class that he could talk about if he if he chooses he, he did a lot of talking this week um but missouri's got a, a pretty good class again uh he's talking eli's talking about stacking these things one on top of the other and that's what you got to do in this league so uh what what was your what you came away from the number two signing day what was your uh main takeaway main thought my first thought was oh it's signing day <laughs> yeah um, exactly. because that's what's happened with this early period is that you don't even really get much attention on what used to be the big signing day. So, um, you know, they've, they've talked about changing that going back to one, just in terms of the impact factor, I, I think they, that would be wise, you know, recruiting never stops, but it doesn't seem like it's doing these coaches any favors, this two signing day system. And now the transfer portal is, is endless. So I don't right. know what the answer is, but they have kind of watered this thing down it was, it was funny, you know, and I think this is going to be kind of common. It really becomes the transfer talk about period where, where right. you know, coaches talk more about the transfers they've added than the incoming, you know, high school players. And that was actually good because Eli got to, to update folks on his views on a lot of these transfers. And, you know, I like the, the makeup of the transfers he's added. Um, we've talked about this a little bit, Dave, but I don't know if we've, we've done it on the podcast the first transfers Eli got were, were more transfer up guys. They were coming from group of five schools, you know, guys who had played well, but wanted to prove their, their, their abilities on the, on the big stage of the sec. Now he's getting more, I would say, you know, lateral transfers, guys coming from power five programs, guys coming from other sec schools where maybe they find a better fit at Mizzou. And, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to assume that some of those guys will, transfer over easier and make an impact sooner because they've played at this level before. So you like the trend lines there of some of the, some of the backgrounds, some of these guys he's added. Um, and he's also made some, some coaching changes, um, some, some reassignments and roles. I, I think that we can get into some of that. That's interesting. Also too, you know, we'll should touch on this, that the stuff he left open about the quarterback conversation is pretty intriguing. Right. You had a great way of putting it is that, you know, the, maybe the most interesting th thing he said about a recruit is the one he hasn't uh, hasn't gone after yet. Um, spring is going to be an interesting time for the transfer portal again. Um, I was talking with somebody at another SEC school on staff, and they said, look, there's going to be a flurry of moves come spring. Once guys get a feel for that depth chart, it's going to start changing again. And the one thing that could change, the one place you pretty much know you're not going to play unless you're the starter, is quarterback. So if Eli wants to sit tight there, see what he gets out of this offseason competition. There could be some interesting names. So there's a lot to dig into there, but let's start with the new Tigers, the guys we know are here. What, what stood out to you from, from Eli's comments about some of these transfers, including, you know, you've got some uh, specifically a Florida linebacker who, who 
needs to come in and play well right away after um, the Tigers got mixed results there at that position last season and also lost the guy who had those mixed results in Blaze Aldridge. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they have 10 transfers, 10 scholarship transfers, one more walk-on. Um, six of those 10 are on defense and all six are coming from power five schools. So I think that's, you know, that speaks to what you mentioned with, you know, transferring laterally or um, not guys necessarily moving up in class. And I think the interesting thing too, and this is smart on their part, there's a mix. Some of these guys are short-term answers that maybe only have a year or two of eligibility or guys you can plug and play right away. And then there's others who are younger who haven't even played yet. Ian Matthews, the D lineman from Auburn, was just a freshman this last year. Braden, uh, Braden Norwood, cornerback from Texas a and I think played in one game. He's a freshman. So you can develop those guys. Uh, and then the other transfers on defense, you've got um, Tyron Hopper. He's the linebacker from Florida who has three years of eligibility, but he's played a full season, uh, a season and a half basically at Florida and was their starter, you know, at the end of the year last year, played really well at Missouri. He, he's a yeah. plug and play guy. I mean, he, he could go in right away and play next to Chad Bailey at inside linebacker from Missouri. And I think you got yourself a nice starter there. Jaden Jernigan, same thing. Defensive tackle from Oklahoma state comes from a, a really good defense there. Um, essentially can replace Makai Wingo. Doesn't have, I think he's got one fewer year left of eligibility than Wingo, but Heck, you're not worried about 2024 right now. You're worried about 2022. Um, Josh Charleston is that safety from Clemson. Another guy, a former starter from, you know, an elite program can come in and play right away and help out, essentially replaces Sean Robinson uh, in, in that rotation possibly. So I, I think defensively, they, they really made some progress there, uh, especially with some of those short-term guys. Offensively, you know, they got just one power five guy and, and, Nathaniel Pete, but he's was Stanford's leading rusher last year, and he's got more carries, career carries than the rest of Missouri's running backs combined. So he's a guy that I think if if um, you know you're looking for a a starter or at least the leader of that group as far as just experience goes, he's he's got to be your candidate. Um, again, offensive lineman uh, Bence Polgar from Buffalo and his teammate, the tight end Tyler Stevens from Buffalo, two guys that positions of need for sure. I mean, you need a center. Mike Maietti uh, graduated after his 17th year of college football and <laughs> you had the mass exodus at tight end. So you just need, you need bodies there. And Stevens is a guy at least who's played some college football. So yeah, I think it's an interesting mix. We'll see. Uh, they're going to have to work those guys in the spring. Um, but when, when you played a little college football, like most of these guys have, then that transition should be a little bit easier. I, I'm just as um, we'll get to the staff, but I'm just as intrigued by what they're doing on the coaching staff. And I thought something that Eli said on Wednesday, when he talked to us, um, I thought showed some growth from him. It showed, uh, it was some real candor basically saying that he realized last year, he can't be the best head coach he can be and be the quarterback's coach. Um, he felt like the quarterback play dropped off last year. And then when he tried to focus a little bit more on the team and less on the quarterbacks, um, that didn't help things either. And he just thought that that position group wasn't well coached last season. And instead of just saying, okay, I'm going to do a better job coaching the quarterbacks, he's taking that off of his plate and handing it to Bush Hamden, who had been their receivers coach, but um, Bush is a natural quarterbacks coach. I mean, he coached the position at a couple different stops, including with the Atlanta Falcons. He played quarterback at Boise State. Um, 
the famous story about him is he, he was the backup on the Boise team that beat Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl years ago, but he was the one who came up with the play that suggested they run that Statue of Liberty play that was the, the fame, one of the most famous plays in college football. So he's a really sharp mind. Uh, I think he'll be kind of enthused by, you know, going back to work with quarterbacks full time. So we'll see if that if that has, you know, a, a positive outcome. And I, I think that Eli, it was interesting. He said, I need to be more hands on with the rest of the team. This gives him more time for recruiting. We know he loves doing that um, and he's pretty good at it. He said he sat in on a D-line meeting for the first time this week because he's got time for that now. And and I I think when you take over a new program, there's there's some obvious tension there with your former players that are players that played under the former coach came there under the former coach. And maybe he's recognizing that, Hey, maybe if I just give more of myself to everybody, instead of just these four quarterbacks that can have a positive net effect. So I, I thought that showed some, um, anytime a coach admits, Hey, I don't have all the answers and I, I got to change a little bit. I, I think that's smart when you're willing. Some you see this in these coaches, sometimes the older they get, they realize, Hey, I need to delegate more. I'm, you're paying these assistant coaches 500 grand. You might as well let them do their job, you know? And I think that's something that he's, he's realized here, especially on the offensive side. You can kind of uh, imagine Gary Pinkle nodding along as, as Eli realizes, okay, I got to let these coaches do their job so I can right. do my job better. I, I think it's natural for, you know, a, a coach who's still relatively new in his head coaching career to feel like the best answer is to do everything himself. Right. Um, you know, it's, at least that way, if it fails, it's on you. And, and, you know, I remember Barry Odom talking about, you know, going through that, feeling like he had to have his hand on every lever and realizing that, okay, I actually have to, I actually, if I, if my attention is divided between doing 15 different things, then no, nothing is getting my best effort. And, yeah. you know, you have to prioritize what you have time for, what you're being truthful about being able to, to be your best at. I thought it, the fact that he talked about the relationship side of it was important. You know, I don't knock a coach too much for losing, losing players in this era that he didn't recruit. Right. Um, that's <laughs> if you inherit a roster, there's going to be turnover any, any way, shape or form. It, it just, you know, guys don't commit to the program anymore. They commit to the coach and that they, they sign because of the coach as much as the, the name on the, on the uniform. You don't have to like that, but that's pretty much the way it is. So when there's turnover there, but when you start, you know, like a Makai Wingo is a unique situation because he gets to go reunite with his, you know, former high school head coach at LSU. But you also, if you're Eli Drinkwitz, I think in, in your heart of hearts, you're going, man, I wish I, I wish that wasn't a thought that entered his mind. You know, you'd like to have a relationship with a player, talented freshman like that, where a guy doesn't leave. So maybe by spending more time with all players, by, by kind of fanning out, past the offense, he develops, you know, some of those relationships better. And, and I think that's a smart call. And, and I think it, it should, it should pay dividends to him. It should give him a better feel for, you know, what the defense is doing. And, and, you know, if he's going to be the play caller, which he's still holding on to, right. it helps. I would imagine to have a better sense of kind of the symbiotic relationship between the offense and the defense. It's going to be curious for Hamden because he's coaching a position group that, you know, we talked about all these impact transfers and all of these encouraging incoming recruits that has Missouri with such a promising recruiting class, really the, the most unstable spot on this football team is the most important. Right. It's, it's the quarterback. And then now it's got a new coach. We don't know who's going to play the position. 
but we, I think it's safe to say that Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri is going to have kind of a, a ceiling here until he gets a quarterback who can do the things he wants to do offensively. He's an offensive coach. That's why he has, you know, he was hired because of his vision of how an offense should work. It's exciting. It's dynamic. It can do a lot of different things. We saw, we've seen some of that, but it's really limited by, by the, by the position at quarterback so far. Connor Bazelak hurt a lot last year, didn't play very well, is now left, and he's at Indiana. You know, two kind of question marks in Cook and Macon. Sam Horn promising coming in, not there in spring ball. And here's Eli saying, hey, you know, we're, we're not exactly uh, shuttering the quarterback conversation. Uh, right. We're going to see what happens in the spring. That's more willing to talk about the possibility of that than he's been all offseason. I, I thought that was kind of a change in tune, didn't you, from what he said in that press conference compared to kind of what he said since the bowl game? Yeah, and for one, he hasn't said a whole lot since the bowl game. But, yeah, the other day yeah. to say, hey, we're open to anything. Because um, you just – with the portal, you don't know. You can't make some grand proclamation. Hey, we're not going to take – add anybody at this position, X position, whether it's um, – quarterback or offensive guard or safety because you don't you have no idea who's going to become available I mean there could be um, a really good quarterback out there who everybody knows is going to start this fall for whatever team that maybe he just has a falling out with a position coach or his girlfriend transfers or something happens and it's so easy now to transfer or his hey his high school coach gets a job coaching quarterback somewhere else or or something changes to where he's like you know what I'm going to enter the portal well Missouri has shown if anything, that they are going to pounce on a player if he fits their needs in the portal. And, and Eli said that the other day with the with the second hopper, Tyron Hopper, the Florida linebacker. He said, hey, and the, the, the rule of the portal is if you're not if you ain't first, you're last. Quoting the, the great Ricky Bobby there that, um, you know, he's going to there's going to be some real urgency with portal players for this staff and that they're going to include, I think, quarterback in there now. He, what if Brady Cook or Tyler Macon comes out in the spring and is just incredible and has this instant rapport with, you know, Luther Burden and Dominic Lovett, and it just looks magical. Well, I don't know if that's possible in the spring to really tell that, but then maybe they back off a little bit and say, well, this is not necessary, especially with Horn coming in in the summer. But if things are kind of clanky, if they struggle to move the ball, if you, if you kind of get the feeling, hey, neither one of these guys is the answer long-term or even short-term, then we got to go out and pursue somebody at least for a year and then hand things over to Sam Horn eventually. So I, I think that's what's great about the portal is it gives you these options that you wouldn't have had before. You'd have to be locked into something. And then, you know, it kind of gets your fan base, you know, you lose some support because people are like, oh, there's no quarterback. This season's going to be, you know, a real it's going to be like this transition year that no one's really going to enjoy it but you just never know with this thing so I think the smart coaches are the ones that keep an open mind and say hey we'll see what who's out there when they're out there I think it's also a way to keep the pressure on the internal candidates right, right. Um, right. you're not just competing against one another you're competing against quarterback x right who maybe hasn't even decided to transfer yet and it's unlikely that a guy transfers in spring and becomes a starter but it's becoming more likely all the time yeah, um, especially in this era. Joe Burrow was a spring transfer at LSU. Um, we know how that turned out. He yeah. led the Tigers to a national championship. Now he's playing in a Super Bowl. So pretty good quarterbacks can leave in the spring. If you just go through the depth charts of, you know, a place like Georgia, 
<laughs> see all that quarterback talent in that room, someone's not right. going to be happy come spring. Now, I'm not saying one of them's going to leave, but that happens. Um, and, and if you're a guy who you go, man, okay, I could, I could, I could basically, my only chance to play this year is if someone goes in the tank or gets in trouble or gets benched or gets hurt versus I could transfer now and start at another SEC, have a chance of starting at another SEC school in an open competition. Yeah, that's going to be pretty appealing because quarterback's not a spot where you rotate through. Like if it's a defensive lineman who's not happy, you're going to play. You might not play as much as you want. You might not be the first guy on the field, but you're going to play. Quarterback, it's not like that. So I think it's smart to keep options open. The other thing too, they've got room. Um, You know, some of these rosters are so slammed with scholarship limits. They've they've added to the gills. They can't add anybody if they want somebody. So you can replace up to seven scholarship players via the portal if you've lost that many. If you go beyond that, then you're starting to cut into your scholarship limit and you you might have to, you know, you might run up against the freshman take. But Eli's left himself a significant amount of wiggle room to add. Yeah, and they're they're right at about – or at 85, that limit, but they can still sign five more guys, transfers, if they lose up to five transfers. And you know you're going to lose some transfers after spring. It's just inevitable. You've got a third-team safety who, or a third-team guard or somebody who says, you know what, I gave it my best for these 15 practices, but I'm not going to play. Maybe it's time to transfer down or go somewhere closer to home or something like that. So that's inevitable, and that's that will open the doors for some more opportunities somewhere else. And um, so we'll see. I mean, there's just there's there's no there's absolutely no off season anymore when it comes to this until the NCAA steps in and says, OK, we're going to shut the portal down from, um, you know, February to May or, you know, June to August or something like that. Then maybe this will calm down a little bit, but it's not going to. I mean, you figure out when classes started that there's not going to be a lot of movement until after spring, but there's there's no reason to expect it to be shut down completely because um, players are going to move as, as easily as they can. Yeah. And then recruiting of the, the, the recruiting of the transfers is not going to stop. Right. Even if the portal is shut off. I mean, that's, that's one thing that has become very clear to me this season. It's, it's open season. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no such thing as tampering. <laughs> there's no such thing as, as not using NIL to recruit. I mean, that's the, that's been zooming out. That's been the, the hilarious part. I mean, was it a month ago that that Jimbo Fisher was was joking about name image likeness saying, hey, we used to or not not we he would never say that. Hey, people used to always do that. We just didn't talk about it. Right. Um, and it was kind of, you know, all hunky dory. And, and now flash forward, here he is being you know insulted to his core that people are suggesting that the reason A&M has the best recruiting class in the nation is because they're rolling deep in NIL money. And he's acting like people are accusing them of cheating. That's supposed to be allowed, right? I mean, now right. it's not just used in recruiting, but Eli Drinkwitz was once asked about that, and he, and he said it's not. I mean, he made a joke out of it. It is a joke. Right. You know, you've got Lane Kiffin who is saying little old Miss can't can't um, afford to compete in the same month that they're announcing a three hundred million dollar you know project to upgrade their stadium, um, while also dubbing himself the transfer portal king. With right. you know, with it's it's a joke. You know, Lane Kiffin is is calling into question the ethics of Jimbo Fisher, and it's like, it's I mean, come on. So it, it's open. Um, do do what you can do to to get these players. Uh, I don't know how the NCAA is going to go about enforcing this, but it does seem like Drinkwitz is on the is on the is on the mindset of hey, nil. We have to use it. We have to we have to 
be competitive here. And it does seem like, you know, with some of these players that he's gained the interest of from marquee programs that, uh, that they're getting some things going here. So it's going to be tough to compete with you know, the oil money of, of Texas A&M, but he certainly seems like he has been in contact with the right folks to get some of this stuff off the ground. And it, it seems to be helping him now. Can I help him get a, a stud quarterback in the spring? I don't know, but um, I'm surprised he's been so quiet about the, uh, the conversation here. Uh, Maybe he's saving his lines for spring. Well, he's, days. He, he was on Paul Feinbaum the other day, and he Paul was trying to get him engaged to throw him <laughs> into the mix here. And, and it was an interesting comment from Eli. He said, you know, I, my dad told me this offseason that I need to be quiet and I need to start winning before I start talking so much. And he even made the point, he goes, you know, people want to make comparisons to Steve Spurrier, but Steve Spurrier won a bunch of games before he became Steve Spurrier the talker. <laughs> So maybe he's – that's a shame for us, you know, because like – Oh, man, yeah. At SEC Media Days, he was referencing that he named his uh, college flag football team after uh, after Steve Spurrier. Right. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll believe it when I, uh, when I see it that he's going to be, you know, buttoned up Eli during the <laughs> offseason. Uh, but I, it's probably in his best interest to let Jimbo and Lane fill up all the airspace for now and then just kind of keep your head down and go recruit a top 15 class and, and uh, throw out the jabs and the barbs when – when it's the right timing, but I don't, I don't think he's going to change too much. I back to his staff. I do think, and I forgot to mention this. Um, he at he hires Blake Baker to coach safeties. And I think this is a quietly, a really interesting hire. He was a linebackers coach at LSU last year. Before that, he was the D coordinator at Miami. He'd been the D coordinator at Louisiana tech. Uh, and before that he coached with Eli for one year at Arkansas state he made the comment talking about him this week, talking about Baker. Eli said he'll be a number two in the room, uh, referring to the number two basically behind Steve Wilkes as coordinator. That definitely caught my ear. Um, and there was even some rumblings. I remember Baker's name coming up last year about maybe a, a candidate to possibly replace Ryan Walters as defensive coordinator. So this looks like um, not a not a coordinator in waiting situation in name, but you know if Steve Wilkes should ever jump back to the NFL where he spent the bulk of his career. I think Baker would be, um, you know, kind of that natural candidate to move into that spot, especially because unlike Steve Wilkes, he has coached with Drinkwitz before. So Eli knows him, knew him when he hired him. They had a previous relationship. So interesting little ad there. We'll see what he adds in recruiting to him. He's been at some major programs, obviously, uh, you know, working with Coach O last year at LSU and, and at Miami before that. Yeah, good stuff. And spring ball is going to be here before we uh, before we know it, Dave. It's crazy to think that with uh, with a foot of snow on the ground, but uh, it's coming. Right now, though, basketball season, and I wanted to think of a a smart way to talk about this because you know I don't what I don't want to do is every time we have a podcast is make it the Conzo Martin hot seat update right. because it it's just going to be very based off of the last game, and I don't feel like that's maybe the, the smartest way to talk about it. Here's what I here's what I want to roll out though. If you're, you know, put yourself in the seat of Desiree Reed Francois and say, okay, what is an AD doing at this point? Um, it's clear there's pressure on the coach. It is clear that they have a, a good relationship, but she didn't hire him. She's, you know, in her first year on the job. She's going to be watching the end of this season, um, considering all kinds of things. So I thought maybe that's a maybe that's an interesting way to talk about this situation. I don't. It's not the it's, it's the worst kept secret that this is a, a team under pressure and a coach in his fifth season who's 
not winning at the level he wants to or, or anybody wants to. Um, so if you're if you're Desiree and you've watched this team go from being, you know, on the wrong end of lopsided losses now being more competitive, which is a good thing. Right. But, but now they're now they're in the in this in this tailspin of finding new and painful ways to to lose close games. What are some of the things you're considering? I mean, to me, I'm thinking, is it better to make a change? And what is the downside of it, the potential downside of it versus the upside of saying, okay, one more year and what can happen in that year? Because that's the thing to think about too. You've never been able to change a team quicker with transfer options. Um, you, you have the potential of losing players who could contribute if you make a change. Um, but you're also balancing it with powerful people at the school might be right. ready to make a change. You know, people with putting money, you know, we know the buyout is $6 million. People who want to pay that money, if someone hands you a check or says they can come up with it, then you got to think long and hard about saying, no, 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 we're not doing that. Right. So she's kind of trying to, to balance those things too. What are some other factors here that you got to consider if, as this conversation is going to continue here through the regular season? I don't think she wants to make any decision right now, and she's not going to. She right. shouldn't because there's not any good decision to make now. You let it play out to see what happens. Right. But there are some conversations that have to be running through her head. Yeah, and I think I think we need to start with the caveat that yes, Desiree will be the face of this decision, but we know how Missouri operates. You have a president slash chancellor in Moon Choi who is involved in athletics. We know that the way he talked about her hire. Um, and we have a board of curators. It doesn't seem to matter who is on that board. They like to be involved with decisions and like to influence decisions and have their way. So it's, yes, it'll be her call. It'll be her quote on uh, whatever the decision may be, but it would be naive to think she is acting alone here. Um, so yes, what factors? I think the buyout obviously is a big one. Um, as we reported a couple weeks ago, this is the fifth straight year Missouri's operating at a budget deficit. So money does matter here. Um, if, you, if you go out and find $6 million, that $6 million that you're finding that you could, you, know, you can't now ask for, to use on something else, you know? So that's gotta be a factor to some degree. Maybe it's not the number one factor. I think you gotta look out at the crowds at home games and, and let um, the attendance, the fan support has to have some kind of sway in, in what you're deciding here. Um, because that's not just your fan support, that's, that's also revenue, lost revenue that you're costing yourself by kind of letting this program drift into obscurity there's a lot of indifference out there right now it's, it seems what i've kind of gathered just from my little spot here observing this program covering this program uh, i think you got to look at the market the coaching market I, I, I think it's a mistake to say hey we're not going to make a change because there's no obvious candidate out there i don't think you can you can find somebody if you're committed to making a change but you have to take that into consideration who else is going to be making changes there could be a whole bunch in the sec this year look at frank martin at south carolina tom crean at georgia um, you know, is Jerry Stackhouse going to survive at Vanderbilt? There's just, there's a lot of uncertainty at several places, not, not just Missouri. Um, at this, this league is a lot more competitive nationally than it was when Missouri first got in. So um, you can't just go out and make some Mickey Mouse hire and expect to compete with the Bruce Pearls and um, the John Calipari's and the Rick Barneses and the heavy hitters that are in this conference, you have to be fully committed to saying, Hey, this is our guy. We're going to pay him 
a really competitive salary and we're going to give them the resources we need. And we need somebody that we know can do this, not just somebody that we hope um, or that we, we think has this one little connection to Mizzou and is going to turn this around. So I think you, you really got to consider that. Um, and then just the trajectory of the program, you know, is, is keeping things status quo. Um, can you not, there's no guarantees obviously, but, do you have a faith and hope that it will get better if you, if you keep things the way they're going right now? Gary Link told me this years ago when I was researching a book and talking about the Quinn Snyder years. And Gary obviously was really close to Quinn. And we know the, the great, not great story, infamous story that it was Gary that had to drop the news to Quinn that he was being fired. Um, but, but Gary said in hindsight, it, the, the mistake there was keeping Quinn one year too long. That's the mistake you don't want to make. Because uh, then it just sets you back even further as a program and with your fans and everything. So you have to consider those things. And um, tough call. Obviously, we don't have a full body of work yet. There's still four weeks left of this season. Some winnable games out there, but they've had winnable games here for the last couple of weeks. I mean, this is the team that's gone from they don't know how to start games to now they don't know how to finish. Yeah. And, um, you know, is it – I get asked all the time, is it is it coaching or is it the players? It's everything. When you can't finish a game – it's, it's everything. You can't just blame the players. You can't just blame the coach. It's not a video game. He's not, he's not sitting there with a remote control, getting to control everything the players do. But um, ultimately though, he is the coach who put this team together. And I think that's where you hold Conzo accountable for too. Also is that this is his group. This is the group he chose to have on the, on the court this year. Yeah. And then potential plus side being the fact that some of those guys have gotten better. Yeah, um, you know they're sure. playing uh, better basketball than they were when they started. Now, can't defend how it started. You can't defend right. twenty plus point losses. So, in some ways, that's uh, you know maybe that's a non-starter for some folks. I look at it. What I would try to look at it as is how far away is this team from being where I want it to be. Um, and to me, it's it's a it's a point guard, a really good point guard away from being a, a good team, a, a decent team, a tournament ish team. And uh, it may be a big, but, you know, it's, it's easy to say that it's another thing that are those guys going to come? Um, right. Are they going to come to a coach who's, who's in a hot seat season? Um, are they going to have bigger, better NIL deals elsewhere? Um, that to me, I, I think before you can make a decision on Conzo Martin at Missouri, I think what Desiree Reed Francois has to do is try to figure out what basketball is going to mean to Missouri. Yep. Because I think if you put 10 Mizzou fans in a room, and said, what do you, what's your expectation for this basketball team? You could get very well 10 different answers. Yeah. And I think that's a confusing place to be when you're trying to figure out what is acceptable, what is fireable, what is a down year that you just stomach and say, okay, it's got to get better um, versus this can't stand. It's, you know, it has to be a change. I don't know that Missouri knows that answer. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean that, and people are going to say, now you're bashing the fans. I'm not. Um, when you look at some of the, the metrics you would look at to gauge importance, Missouri is all over the map. You know, they, they want to be in the tournament every year. They want to go deep into the tournament, understandably. Look at the resources the, the, the department puts into the program and how it compares us with some teams that are there in that category. Um, look at some of the NIL deals that some of these teams, in the, even in the SEC have going on um, they're not hard to find you know google google what ej liddell you know got at, at ohio state or, or some of these players that 
you're watching going, man, it would have been great to see that guy at Mizzou. It would have been probably, and chances are there's a reason um, beyond simply recruiting um, that, that, that kid win, especially in this era now yeah. where these guys can get those things. So, you know, that que- that's a question that has to be solved, whether the coach is Conzo Martin or whoever comes next, um, if that change is made. Because if you don't answer those questions and have kind of this, uh, this plan and this energy behind it, which is I think Eli's done a good job of getting that, that kind of new era rolling where people are getting it okay. If, if you want those classes, you got to get involved with, with NIL. It's the same thing for basketball. But Missouri hasn't figured out how to connect those things. Now, maybe that's on Martin. Maybe it's maybe basketball is not as high up as football on the depth chart here as Missouri gets deeper into its time in the SEC. You know, I don't know. I don't, but I think they've got to figure out that answer before it's going to work for Conzo or whoever comes after him or the guy after him. Um, right. It just seems like they're kind of in this spot where they don't know what they want out of their basketball team. Right. And yeah. They, they, being better than, than how things didn't work for Kim Anderson isn't good enough. Right. But also do you, how much grace period do you get to try to get out of that? You know, if Conzo Martin's not good enough, what is Missouri going to do to make sure the next guy's product is? Um, because it's, it's easy. It's always easy to fire the coach, but it doesn't answer some of the same issues. The next coach might be dealing right. with. Right. Um, and, and the chances are, if you fire, if you hire the coach who, who fixes everything, then you got to have a whole nother conversation. How are you going to keep him? Because right. there are places that will, that will make that coach, if he checks every box, which is almost impossible to do, then what are you going to do to make sure he doesn't leave you for some other job? And that's a great problem to have. But I think that's where Missouri is, is I think their expectations are all over the map when it comes to basketball right now. And I think it is one of the things that's affecting the program, along with much more tangible things like the fact the team trips all over itself in a close game in late situations, which is a totally fair complaint. So I think that, you know, that's the thing to me. What what does Desiree Reed Francois want this basketball program to be? Right. Um, and, and what, what is Moon Choi and the curators, where do they want it? Can they, can they get on the same page? Cause that has to happen before they make any decision. here. Right. I think that's a really smart point about what is the measure of success of this program? Um, Cause I hear it all the time, you know, during the Kim years, it was just be relevant again. Okay. Well, Conzo made them instantly relevant. Okay. We'll just get to the tournament. Okay. Well, he, he did that twice. Um, last year's team, you know, was ranked 10th in the country for a while. Then they kind of nose did a nosedive and still squeaked into the tournament. Um, then, then that wasn't good enough. You know, I, I, and I don't want to pick on one question, but I had a chat question this week that said, gosh, since Norm Stewart, Missouri's best coach, the only good coach has been Quinn Snyder. I said, what? I mean, have we lost sight of what Mike Anderson was doing? Guy won, he was here five years, inherited a mess. So you give him a pass the first year. Then he, he won 20 games. His next three years, 30 games one year, made the Elite Eight. Yeah, he didn't leave things in a great situation. But are we at the point now where that's not considered successful anymore or or we just forgotten that that happened? So, yeah, you're right. The the fact that all these coaches have been here have been at a modicum of success other than Kim Anderson, but then fell off to some degree. I think there's just been this absence of reality on what is a – a measure of success for this program because there's, it's been so choppy and it's been so turbulent. There have been good years mixed in there. I mean, people, I hear from people all the time, Oh, the glory years of, of Norm Stewart. Well, yeah, sure. 
there were some glory years there, but Quinn went to an elite eight and, and Mike Anderson went to an elite eight and Frank Haith had this team positioned to make a real run to the final four. Now they ran into Norfolk state in the first round, but man, that was a great season and a lot of great things happened. And it's just, they just haven't followed it up. So what is the measure of success? Is it a burst or is it year after year, you know, you're going to be in the hunt. And I don't, you know, I, I haven't had a situation like that in a while. Well, and also remind newer listeners of the podcast who don't go back as, as long what happened to Norm Stewart. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't, we, we don't, we, no one mentions that part of the Norm, Norm Stewart story is right. people, you know, thought he had peaked and they wanted better. And, and it's natural to want better, but now is a time in college sports where never before has it been more achievable to actually have the people who want it to be better make it better. Right. <laughs> fans can fans have as much ability to put their you know their money where their mouth is literally now than, than ever before. Legally, those, pro, those programs you're chasing, they're all they're already doing it. And and Missouri, I don't have the numbers, but I can tell you that the NIL situation for basketball at Missouri is not comparing to what you want other, you know, what compared to the programs Missouri would love to be. It's just right. not adding up right now. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that's the thing that I look at. And, and I like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much on the record as thinking Conzo should get another year. I know I'm probably on a shrinking island there. And that's fine. You know, I'll, I can take those uh, arrows. But part of my thing is sometimes the best way to combat what you're doing that isn't working, which is constantly refreshing the cycle of coaches who either get pushed out because the expectations get too big or they, they leave for a better job. I mean, Mike Anderson left for what he thought was a better job. Right. You know, Frank Haith left because he felt like he was going to get fired and also probably knew there was some NCAA baggage coming. So, you know, look at what is the, look at the cycle. And sometimes the smart thing to do is to say, okay, this isn't what we want, but can we fix it? And can fixing it be better than rebuilding it? Right. And fixing it be better than wiping it clean? Because that sometimes go, if you look at programs, you know, look at it in football. Look at what Kentucky is doing with Mark Stoops. They're, they could have fired Mark Stoops. And I'm not saying that that's what it turns into, but sometimes some patience and some willingness to accept the rotten year with a plan of coming out of it of what has to change, sometimes that can be better than simply refreshing. Um, refreshes are fun, but and they're exciting, but where do they ultimately lead to? It depends on who you hire. It also depends on how you support it. So that's the thing. If you're going to spend $6 million to buy the guy out, I just, my opinion is that $6 million invested into this program to do some different things might be better than hiring a new coach. And I think you probably get that point guard who can hit a gate, who can hit a fadeaway three or, or doesn't shoot it because he can actually get to the basket and, and make a shot. Uh, to, to beat it, win a game against Florida. So my take where things stand now, we won't get in the habit of doing that every single right. week, but uh, it is the <laughs> big discussion. After a while. Yeah. Ignore it. You know, it, and that's the, that's ultimately where you don't want to be in the second half of a basketball season where the games are a referendum on a hot seat, not, not a tournament discussion or, or a chance to make the playoffs or, you know, sorry, the, the, the tournament. So that's, that's unfortunately where Missouri is. We'll see if, if the Tigers can sway the discussion here. Um, Desiree Reed-Francois has an interesting decision on, on her hand here. The first big one of, of her career as this plays out. So, Dave, anything else we got to hit on before we run here? I think we've hit it all. I think we've hit I gotta, it all. I got I to gotta go take a lap for, for saying playoffs. I college mean, 
college basketball. It's it's a it's a football league. It's a, it's a football <laughs> school, man. You got playoffs on the brain. Oh man, yeah. We'll uh, playoffs, playoffs, playoffs. <laughs> all right, man. Hey, keep it locked at stltoday.com for all of your Mizzou coverage. Dave usually has about ten stories up per day. Um, I think since he's been hanging out in his basement under the weather, he's about that to about fifteen. Um, we got a new uh, Mizzou video coming out as well. To check that out at stltoday.com. Follow Dave on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. And we'll talk to you next week, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and have a good week.